You're listening to Run Free with Chris Phillips and Addie Cooper. Run Free is proudly supporting the use of sport to combat mental health. There's no way I'd ever dreamed of winning two gold medals, but clearly I was in the best shape of my life. I had a really great team behind me and I knew I could never get as low as I got the year before. You know, so in my mindset, you know, and I'm at the bottom of the bottom wanting to jump in a hole and yet I'm running at a world championships and winning a silver medal. That's a big mind game. I hated it and I thought I would never, ever, ever, ever miss a final again. Never. Because the feeling I had while I was sitting in the stand watching my colleagues, my teammates run was awful. I would rather always be on that start line and perhaps fail than never have made the start line. There was a series of events that happened which left me with about 15 pence in my account. But everyone assumes everything's fine because you're a sports person, you're an Olympian, you've made millions or whatever, you're like, <laughs> no. Run free. Joining us today, I'm delighted to say, as a real cricketing legend and a man who's done so much for mental health, especially in recent years, Graham Fowler, it's fantastic to have you with us today. First of all, uh, how are you? How are you feeling right now? I'm very well. I presume you know about my mental health scale. Yeah, you want to sort of start yeah. off with that then? It's not to 20. Never been one, never been a 19. 10 is neutral. Below 10, I'm not well. Above 10, I am well. Yeah. And I usually work between about 3 and 16. I'm MH14 today. Yeah, when did you come up with that scale then? And what was the sort of thinking behind it? When I first got depression, we had three daughters, but there were nine, eight, and two at the time. They knew something was wrong with me. But when I'm depressed, I can't think. I can't speak. I can't formulate words or sentences. So I couldn't tell them how I felt. So. One day I just thought, I'll use a number system. When Sarah got home, I explained it to her. She explained it to the girls. So when they came in from school or nursery, they'd just say, so how are you, Daddy? And if I said seven, then they'd say, well, do you want us to leave you alone or would you like some company? And it didn't matter whatever I said. They just got on with stuff. If they came in and they said, what number are you? And I said, 12. Oh, brilliant. Can we go and do something? We still use it now. The girls now are 26, 25, and 19, and we all still use that scale. And has that proved quite a useful way of being able to communicate how you are feeling when yes. time? Yeah, it's just done in a number. One word. I'm 14. I think it was 99 when I first got depression. Eventually, after about six, seven months, went back to work. Told all my colleagues the number system as well. So when I go in in the morning, one of them, and it was a big coach's office, and you know, rowing coaches, rugby coaches, hockey, tennis, everybody. So I'd go in in the morning and somebody would always say, what number? And if I said eight, nine, do you want a cup of tea? I can just about function on eight and nine. Yeah. But if I went in and said, what number? I said, oh, I'm about 13. Well, put the bloody kettle on then. <laughs> you know, they reacted differently as well, and it worked for them. And it also, nobody was wondering. And nobody was tiptoeing around on eggshells because I could just tell them in one number how I was feeling. Yeah, I mean, it's been a tough time for everyone lately, hasn't it? I mean, lockdown and everything has been changing during that time, what we can do, what we can't do, what we think we can yeah. do. How has lockdown and the last few months been for yourself personally? Strangely enough, my wife Sarah works in the NHS. She's a project manager. She's incredibly busy at the moment. 
she said to me first week in February, she said, we're going to go in lockdown. So you might as well go in now. So I went in lockdown on February the 12th. And the first time I actually left our property and garden, if you like, apart from going for walks, was on the 4th of July. So I'd been a long time, but it was great early days because we had all three daughters were at home. Our granddaughter was here. So we were all together. And we found that somebody had organised a quiz every night. We watched very little television and we spent time talking to each other. And I've got to know my daughters far better through circumstance. And I think they understand me more now just because we were in the house in it all together. I've always made things. I've turned two floor tom-toms and a kick drum into coffee tables. <laughs> I've turned four brass blowtorches into lights. So I always like doing stuff like that. And then Sarah was working in the conservatory where I am now at a table. And she said, it's just not like being at work because I can hear the washing machine and the kettle's around the corner. So she said, you know the shed in the garden? I said, yeah. Well, the kids used to play in it as a summer house. She said, do you think you could turn that into an office? I said, yeah, of course I can. So I repaired the boards, I put some new felt on the roof. I then insulated it, boarded it out with block board, painted it, built the desk on one side and another desk on the other side. I put electricity in it. She's now got a rug in it and pictures up and she absolutely loves it. In fact, yesterday I laid some paving stones down so she doesn't have to walk across the grass now. And so I've been doing things like that. I've completely refurbished our bedroom. I ripped all the carpets up, sanded all the boards, filled in all the cracks, stained it, varnished it. So I've kept myself really busy. In fact, I was a bit bored earlier on today because I can't quite start my next project. <laughs> if I don't have something to do, then I'm sure if I just sat on the sofa in front of the telly, and had done for the period of lockdown, I'd have just crashed, I'd have completely crashed. So I've tried to keep myself busy. And also, once you start making things like that, Alexa Ray, the youngest one, said, Dad, can you build me a pallet bed? So I built her a pallet bed with a headboard and rolled piano keys on top to put lights round. So I've been doing all sorts of things. Surprise, you've got time to join us today. So uh, if we go back to your career, if we go back to that now, must have been very proud of everything that, that you achieved. I mean, there's so many sort of highlights and so many different things that you did. I mean, you must, to this day, still be so proud of everything you achieved. It's quite strange, really. It's almost as if somebody else did it now. It seems a lifetime away. And yet, I can remember specific things. A lot of things I've forgotten, but I can actually remember some specific things, both good and bad. I mean, what I will say, is that I started playing for Lancashire Technical 11 in 1973. Finished at Lancashire in 1992. I then went to play for Durham for two years, 93 and 94. And then from 96 onwards, I coached at Durham University for just under 18 years. In 2015, when I finished at the university, I more or less retired, really. And I thought, I was 59 at the time, and I've never had a proper job. It's hard work, don't get me wrong, it's not a piece of cake. But playing cricket is a vacation because you love doing it. Coaching was a vacation because I love doing it. Now, I mean, you don't enjoy every day, all day, obviously, but all I've been is me. 
And I think that's the biggest privilege of it all. That's the main thing. I mean, yes, nothing finer than representing your country. Well, your county birth where I played most of my career and then playing for your country is just absolutely fantastic. Especially if you do get some success. The only sadness was uh, how it ended. You talk about playing for that time and playing for your country. So the, you must have real yeah. mental toughness, isn't it? To be a professional in, in any sport and to reach the top and the very pinnacle like, like yeah. you. I mean, that must have been very testing in bad runs of form or when people are testing your technique here, there and everywhere. It must be quite hard to be able to deal with. Yeah, it is at times, but every major decision I've made in my life, I've never asked anybody's advice. Yeah. I've always gone inside my own head and worked it out myself. Now, I've made some shocking choices, but I've always done it that way. <laughs> so when people were criticising me on cricket or whatever, I didn't care. Yeah. Because, you know, fine, you say what you want. I can only be me. I can only play my way. I can only fulfil my potential. I can't play like David Gower. I wish I could, but yeah. I couldn't. You know, so I had to make the best of what I had. And I was just getting there. And then I discovered I had a broken neck, which ended it all. I was going to say, you mentioned there about how difficult it was the way that it ended. What happened? Excuse my ignorance. What happened well, that made it hard for you? I got 201 in, in Madras. And then I got 69 in Kampur, I think it was, the last test match. And then we came back to England. And I'd had this pain under the shoulder blade. And it was getting worse and worse and worse. And when I came back to England, because it was cold, I could not turn my head that way. I mean, that's as far as it goes now anyway. But I could turn it that way and I still can. But the thing when you're batting, you set off like that. But by the time you've thrown your arms through, you're actually turning your head that way. And it was agony. I thought it was a trapped nerve. So I went to see the club surgeon, David Markham, a fantastic man. He x-rayed it in various ways and said, have you ever banged your head? He said, well, not that I can think of. He said, about six, seven years ago, when you broke your leg, what was that? I said, oh, that was a car accident, head on. He said, that's it. I said, what do you mean? He said, you've crushed two vertebrae in your neck. So the front, this side, just completely crushed. Yeah. They're like triangles. So I played all my test career with a broken neck. <laughs> the thing about it was that the bone started to recalcify. And it took seven years for them to end up trapping all the nerves. I couldn't coordinate. All the temperatures in my fingers were all different temperatures. I had pins and needles. I couldn't turn my head. I still can't lift it up. And I never told anybody, which was stupid, really. Because I couldn't coordinate, I couldn't play cricket. And I didn't tell anybody. And once I got so far into the season and was playing appallingly, I then didn't want to come out and tell people because it sounded like I was a crybaby. So I'd waited till the end of the season and I had a manipulative operation where they basically knock you out and you just screw your head around like this and break all the bits off. And I've had four of those in total. As soon as I woke up from that, it was like somebody turned the lights back on. I was me again. And in 1986, played well in the pre-season games. I had to get my place back. First match of the season... Clive Lloyd, who was captain, said he didn't want to play because we wanted an extra baller. This is at Brighton. He didn't want Jack Simmons to play because we needed Seamers. So all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I was captain. And I got 180 in that first innings. In fact, I was 27 not out at lunch and it felt like I'd scored a thousand compared to what I'd happened the year before. And then I was out, I think it was just after tea for 180. 
and then we absolutely walked the game and I was off and running again. In 87, I was the leading England run scorer in the championship. Oh no, Graham Hick got 170 last match and just pipped me. I got 1,800 runs. So I was playing well again. The England captain had changed, the selectors had changed and they thought that going back to me was a retrograde step. I was sad that it ended like that because I was just finding my feet in test cricket. Not only did I realise I was good enough to be there, but I also realised I was good enough to make a difference. And that's a whole new ball game. When you realise that you can make a difference and affect the game, it just got cut short, really. Never have had that car crash. God knows what would have happened. Mind you, I might have had a bad run and got dropped and never played again anyway. But I was a bit sad to only play 21 test matches. I was speaking at a dinner a while ago now and somebody introduced me and said that uh, after the first 20 test matches Graham Gooch had got 989 runs Boycott had got 1053 and he was the highest and I got 1201 it's been beaten since I think Tim Robinson did it but I was on the right path really but that's it you know that's life you just have to get on with it don't you how were you mentally when you were a player was everything okay or did you have dips or, or how were you back then no I was fine I was a bit of a lunatic. Any mischief, I was in the middle of it. But every September when the season finished, I would go down to the local video store, get a big pile of videos, and I would lock the front door, I would close the curtains, I would unplug the telephone, no mobiles, and I would eat when I wanted to eat, sleep when I wanted to sleep, drink when I wanted to drink, and I would just watch these videos. And I wouldn't talk to anybody for about a week. And I always viewed that as recharging my batteries because through a cricket season, you use physical energy you don't always have. You use a lot of mental energy and you use emotional energy as well. If you wake up in Northampton and you've had a dodgy curry the night before, you've still got to play, you know, even with stomachache and what. So I always thought of it as recharging my batteries. But if you've read Mind Over Battery, I went and sat down with Mike Brayley. And also there was something quite sad about the first week in September because I knew I only had so many seasons in me. Yeah. And that was one less. Another one had gone. Breers put it this way. He said, you're actually mourning the loss of a season. And I said, yeah, I suppose I am really in a way, yeah. And also there could have been little dips in your mental health but you naturally came out of them. He said, so they could have been little precursors. He said, we don't know, we'll never know. But yeah. I just thought it was a really interesting way of looking at it. Mind you, he's an incredible bloke. But cricket as a whole, it seems to be a sport, doesn't it? Obviously, we've had in more recent times, Marcus Trescothic and, and people like that. Cricket does seem to have a high percentage of players that you not think? No, i tell you why. A long time ago, when I started playing cricket, I was told that the suicide rate of cricketers and ex-cricketers was three times the national average. Yeah. And this was like a, a common myth. So the Players Association decided to do some research. And they found out that it wasn't that at all. We are like the rest of the population. It's one in four. But they said, well, if it's one in four, that's still 25% of our players who one time or another will struggle from mental health issues. So they went into it, and Jason Ratcliffe was brilliant when he was at the PCA, and he set up all these programmes and things. But we encourage everybody to talk about it in cricket. 
which is why you hear a lot of cricketers talking about it. It's okay. not that there are more cricketers with mental health issues. It's just that we're more prepared to be open because I, mean, I believe it's only through awareness and education that people get help. And if people are prepared to talk about their own mental health issues, then they can go and get whatever they need to help them. So if you keep quiet, you just live a miserable life. If you educate people and you speak about it, then it can make a world of difference. It made a world of difference when I went back to work and told all the lads that number scale because they're then appreciated. And I've always said, especially as a sportsman, if you get it playing cricket and you get knocks and bruises. So the following morning when you wake up, you sort of scan yourself to see if that knock that you got on your knee, if it's sore or if you're all right. And you mentally scan yourself. But we never, ever mentally scan ourselves about our mentality. We never, ever do that. And cricket's a game, everybody says he's played in the mind, but 95% of the training we do is physical. And you can do a lot of mental training. I used to do it with the lads at the university because you can teach mental toughness. Obviously, some will go further than others, but you can teach it because if you couldn't teach it, you couldn't make a soldier. Yeah. So I just looked at things you know, in a different way, but cricket is just the same as everybody else. Yeah. And how did you get help? When did your mental health issues start then, if it was sort of after you, you finished playing? I'd been at the university about 10 years, and Christmas term finishes about 15th of December, and they don't go back until 15th of January. So you get a good month off, sometimes five, six weeks. And because I've been there since a while, I had no work to do, because I had no preparation to do, because I knew, I knew already what I was going to be doing. So it's a great family time. I was actually sitting where I'm sitting right now, first week in January, and Sarah said, you need to go to the doctors. I said, what? She said, you need to go to the doctors. I said, what for? She said, you're depressed. I said, well, what do you mean I'm depressed? She said, you haven't spoken to anybody, any of us, for four weeks. And I thought about it. And little Georgina, who was eight, said, Dad, you just sit in the conservatory, where I am now, every day with a Land Rover magazine. And it's the same magazine every day. It was only then I had realised I had completely disconnected from my family, from life, from everything. Couldn't talk, couldn't form sentences. There was nothing going on in my head. And I just sat on this sofa. So I went to the doctor's. He said, yeah, you're clinically depressed. He said, it's not like getting a virus, you know. I said, it won't be over in two weeks. This, this could take months. I said, okay, fine. So I decided to be patient with myself. And he said, do you want to go to therapy? I said, well, there's no point in me going to therapy because I can't form any words. Yeah. So I won't be able to talk. So we decided to go down the heavy medication route. And that made me feel numb but the doctor said to me he said have you thought about suicide i said no because i know i've got a great life great family great job but it's somewhere over there and i can't get to it so i'm not going to kill myself but do i wish i was dead yes so all this medication made me feel numb which was better than wanting to be dead and then over a period of time, I just sort of slowly, slowly came out of it. And it, it did take a long time. 
And then in 2015, I had another one, which lasted about five, six months. But, you know, there are certain things I can do now, I can spot when I'm sliding down. And so early days, things like that, I'll take myself away because I need to be on my own. I need, you know, just sit on my own somewhere. I make sure I get the right amount of sleep, right sort of food. I eat fairly healthily anyway. One of the triggers, when I know this is, this is going to sound so stupid, I can always tell if I'm starting to slide down because I've become obsessed with how straight and tidy the towels are in the airing cupboard. <laughs> Why? I have no idea. But if I start taking them out and putting them, I'm going, hang on, hang on a minute. And another one is I'll get a really incredibly strong opinion about something I don't care about. <laughs> I think, what? Why? Why am I arguing this point when I don't care about it? <laughs> you know, it's just, so I spot these sort of things now and try and adjust. But yeah, straightening the towels. Because Sarah came, came in, uh, downstairs and I was sitting watching telly and she just said, what number are you? I said, I'm about a 14, why? Oh, that's all right. She said, because all the towels are tidy in the cupboard. <laughs> and I just said, well, I, I was putting some in, so I just thought I'll put them in neatly. And another occasion, she said, we're watching the telly. She said, what number are you? I said, I'm about a 15, why? She said, oh, it's all right. It's just that you haven't said anything for two hours. I said, no, I'm really interested in this documentary. But that doesn't do any harm, does it? If I didn't have that number scale, she might be sitting there thinking, oh, God, what's wrong with him? How bad is he? Why is he not speaking? But just by being open about it, what number are you? Job done. And you've been quite open about it in general, haven't you? Obviously, in your go around to all the counties now. I mean, it's fantastic what you do. What made you want to sort of go even further and get involved in, in that kind of thing? Well, after I'd written Absolutely Foxed, I was in Bristol at a dinner. And a gentleman came up to me long before the start of the dinner. And he had a copy of Absolutely Foxed. Will you autograph it for me? I said, yeah, of course I He said, if I hadn't read this book, I wouldn't be here now. Pardon? And I had a couple of people tell me that. Now, when somebody says something like that to you, it gives you, well, it just sends a shiver through you. But then you think, well, if by me doing this, it saved a couple of lives, you can't stop, can you? How could you walk away from it? I couldn't because I know it makes a difference by talking to people. That's why I put everything I did in Mind Over Batter, where I had myself analysed and all that. But you can't not do it. I just started as mental health ambassador for Durham County Cricket Club and had run one session, and then we went in lockdown. So that all stopped. I am hoping that that might start up again next year, depending on what next year looks like. I don't necessarily enjoy or get a massive amount of satisfaction out of me being open about it. But I do get satisfaction out of knowing that other people have got something out of it. I've always been like a natural teacher, coach. And this is the same thing. And if you stand up and say, look, we have issues. If you're ill, or if you've got a physical injury, what's the path back to playing again? And it's diagnosis, treatment, rehab, and then you're back playing again. Well, what is it if you get something wrong mentally? 
mental health issue. It's the same thing. You get a diagnosis, treatment, and your rehab is just patience and time and coming back, and then you're back again. So it's the same thing. And you don't feel guilty if you get a virus, do you? So why would you feel guilty if you get a mental health issue? Sometimes you do feel like you're on your own, don't you, when you do have the issues. And in a way, I mean, I know, obviously, I've had my own issues. And when you see other people and hear other people look like yourself and other people that have come out, it makes you appreciate that you're not the only one, aren't you? And it is important that we all do talk about it, especially as men. We don't sometimes like to admit that we're not as strong as we like to sort of think we are or portray ourselves to be. And that's what we should need to learn, really, isn't it? I always think that if you can admit you've made a mistake, if you can admit that you've got something wrong, I think that makes you a stronger person. I think you're an idiot if you keep it to yourself because not only will it be affecting you, it's bound to be affecting people around you, whether you know it or not. They'll know something's not quite right. So being brave is to open up about it and say, yeah, look, I have mental health issues, but I'm here. They're part of me, but they don't define me. They're just part of my life, but that's it. Just get on with it. (laughs) And do you think it's changed a lot, obviously, from your day as a player to as a coach and now as a mental health ambassador and going around doing what you do? Have you noticed that there is a change and improvement more attached to it than there used to be? Yes. If you think about sports psychology, when I was playing in the 80s, if I had said to any of the managers that I've had, I'd like to see a sports psychologist. The first thing you'd say is, why, what's wrong with you? Yeah. There's nothing wrong with me. I just want to see if I can improve somehow. And that took quite a few years to get that going, to get sports psychology going. And mental health issues are, I don't know, 15 years behind sports psychology. But we are catching up. We are getting better and better. There are more and more people talking about it. The more courses you can go on there's more things you can read about it so yes it's 10 times better than it was when i played nobody ever had a mental health issue when i played not openly do you think there's still more that needs to be done though or of course yeah yeah because every person has a different personality and different mental health issues so some people might need different sort of support some people love therapy i know a couple of people who love therapy they said they, they feel like they're on top of the world when they come out. So, yes, we do need more education and we need to try and get a better understanding of it. I can't tell what you're feeling like, but if you tell me, I can alter my behaviour to fit round you or we can compromise so that we're both all right. It's brilliant going into Durham dressing room and I, and I did the session with them and then all of a sudden to hear them just sitting with a couple of them at the dinner table and they're talking about mental health. That's fantastic. And I was just going to finish off. Why don't you mention your towels with me? It's if I don't shave. That's when people start worrying about me. But you, you couldn't have that problem, could you? I need to talk to you about no. it. People probably can't see it. They're just listening and not actually watching. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. When did you first sort of grow it? And it's, is it a bit of your trademark now? I've always had beards on and off through my career and life. In fact, when I got 200 in India, I had a beard. But then Sarah and I got together and got married, and she didn't really like me having a beard. (laughs) So I didn't have one for years. And then we were watching a programme called Duck Dynasty on telly. 
<laughs> they're all big rednecks, so they've all got massive beards, loads of hair, and all they do is shoot ducks and stuff. And I said, oh, I wish I had a beard again. She said, well, grow one. I said, well, you, you don't like them. She said, they're all right, pointing at these big bushy things. I said, what? No, it's the Craig David finely manicured things I had. I said, oh, I'm going to grow a beard then. She said, yeah, on one condition, no. I said, oh, here we go. You do not touch it for 12 months. And she thought I'd give up, but I didn't. <laughs> so I've had it ever since. Were there times where you've nearly got rid of it? Or does it get itchy? I've never grown it that no. much. Yeah, is it? Never. Don't get no. food stuck in there or anything. <laughs> no. I could spill anything anytime. <laughs> I condition it. Oh, I like that. Excellent. Put oils in it. Sometimes I uh, wax it up a yeah. bit. <laughs> <laughs> we need to get you some kind of endorsement or something like the new Brill Cream Boy or something like that to go uh, <laughs> Superb. Right, that is brilliant. Thank you so much indeed for your time. It was a real honour to talk to you and, and keep doing what you're doing. It's fantastic. Run Free with Chris Phillips and Addie Cooper. Follow us on Twitter at Run Free Official. <laughs>